and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series covering the June 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue 6. First up, Jasmine Marcellin talks about her study on a simple cost-saving hard stop alert in the EHR in her article, Hardwiring Diagnostic Stewardship Using Electronic Ordering Restrictions for Gastrointestinal Pathogen Testing. Then, Dan Karoff discusses his study on whether oral vancomycin prophylaxis accompanying systemic antibiotics reduces the risk of relapse in patients with a history of Clostridioides difficile infection. Then, Elise Fortin and Charles Frenette talk about their article, Changes in Vascular Accesses and in Incident Rates of Dialysis-Related Bloodstream Infections in Quebec, Canada, 2011 through 2017. And lastly, Zachary Yetmar discusses his research on pulmonary artery catheter epidemiology of risk in pre-heart transplant recipients. A quick note about today's episode. During Dr. Karoff's segment, there's a slight echo in some of the audio. My apologies to Dr. Karoff and our listeners for the quality issue. After listening, please be sure to go to the June issue to read the full articles discussed in today's episode. Now let's get started. My first guest today is Jasmine Marsalin, first author of the article, Hardwiring Diagnostic Stewardship Using Electronic Ordering Restrictions for Gastrointestinal Pathogen Testing. Hi, Dr. Marsalin. Would you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Hi, thank you so much, Lindsay, for inviting me to the podcast. I'm Dr. Jasmine Marsalin. I'm an infectious disease physician and associate medical director of antimicrobial stewardship at University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, To begin, will you share with our listeners a little bit of the background for your study? Absolutely. So antimicrobial stewardship has really morphed from just being about antibiotic prescribing to more comprehensive strategies that include diagnostic testing and collaboration with the microbiology lab. And our antimicrobial stewardship program at University of the Nebraska Medical Center is really heavily invested in diagnostic stewardship. And the gastrointestinal pathogen panel was the focus of this latest project that we undertook. So our group uh, implemented the use of the gastrointestinal pathogen panel, which is basically a quick and sensitive but very costly test that detects 22 common organisms that cause diarrheal illness. And a lot of studies in the past have used this test and found it to be useful to detect a wide range of community-associated organisms, but it's not as helpful if patients have been hospitalized for more than three days or if a person previously had a negative test and still has diarrhea. So after we implemented the test um, and replaced most traditional stool cultures in 2016, we found that the test was used frequently and repeatedly, even in patients that were hospitalized for even longer than five days. So uh, at UNMC, we have a clinical effectiveness team here that includes physicians and lab clinicians and pharmacists and nurses and other leaders at the hospital. And so they look at things um, like this to see where we can be more effective at providing high value cost conscious care to hospitalized patients. 
And like I mentioned, the GI pathogen panel test is not a cheap test, and we were using it a lot. And so this seemed like a good target for that clinical effectiveness team to tackle with trying to reduce an inappropriate use. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we collaborated with the microbiology lab and then used the electronic health record of the hospital to provide best practice alerts when people tried to order the test. And so if somebody tried to order it inappropriately and based on prior studies and looking at our uh, institutional use, we designated inappropriately as either greater than 72 hours post-admission or ordering duplicate tests. So if anybody tried to order it inappropriately, there was a hard stop that prevented them um, from signing and completing the order. And um, it it wasn't, you know, like some other tests uh, where we try to influence prescribers or ordering um, clinicians' behavior where it's more of a suggestion. This completely prevented them from going any further. If they felt really strongly that the test needed to be done after the hard stop, they could call the microbiology lab director to discuss overriding the stop, but that didn't occur very often. So what that means is that it was the hard stop was successful at stopping the inappropriate tests. So uh, we looked at the timing before the stop was uh, activated uh, for about 15 months. So once we we, once we implemented the GI pathogen panel in 2016, um, we looked at it for 15 months um, and then before the heart stop was um, implemented. And so during that 15 months, we called it the pre-intervention time. During that 15 months, there were over 21% of the tests that were ordered were inappropriate. In the 15 months after we implemented the hard stop in the EHR, only about 5% of those tests were inappropriate. And so that was a, a huge um, decrease in inappropriate testing, and that was statistically significant. Mm -hmm. We also then um, conducted a cost analysis for the, for the hard stop intervention. And so when, when you consider only the orders that were prevented by the hard stop itself, there was an actual savings of about 67,000 over that post-intervention period of 15 months, which is pretty decent. Mm -hmm. But if you consider the potential orders that were prevented by the best practice alerts, which are a little bit more passive, and the hard stop prevention, then you're looking at a 46% reduction in inappropriate testing and a potential savings of about $168,000, even after accounting for the cost of alternate testing. Now, that is enough to fully fund an ID pharmacist or at least mm -hmm. partially fund an ID physician for a hospital and a microbial stewardship team. So we were really excited about that. Yeah. Um, so I think you touched on this a little bit um, just now as you were speaking, but in your opinion, what are the main takeaways from your article that are most relevant to itchy readers? So um, this study is really useful for any clinicians who might be ordering microbiologic testing for diarrheal illness, whether or not they're primary or specialty physicians, trainees, advanced practice providers, and hospital administrators and quality improvement people are going to be interested in this because of the cost savings. When I presented this at ID Week in 2018, 
there are so many people that were looking for simple interventions like this that save hospitals money, just as examples to demonstrate to the C-suites what the value of funding antimicrobial stewardship is. And of course, it also demonstrates the, the need for collaborating with microbiology lab in a lot of these stewardship interventions. I really think it's interesting because it just shows that something as simple as um, and, and I say simple kind of as it, with, a, with a caveat because honestly, um, there is not a lot that is simple within the electronic health record and uh, when you're trying to do um, interventions like that, but it really didn't take much to put that hard stop in place. And so if you think something that is a simple intervention like that can have such an impactful result, that that's really interesting, I think, of value to itchy readers. Sometimes, you know, as clinicians, we just need gentle nudges to remind us when testing is, a, is appropriate or inappropriate. And sometimes we just need to be told no. <laughs> and so when it comes to diarrheal illness in the hospital, just having the the uh, opportunity using the electronic health record to say no to inappropriate GI pathogen panel testing saves money without compromising quality of care. And I think at the end of the day, that's sort of what we want to be able to do is uh, provide high value quality care without breaking the bank or, or ordering inappropriate tests. And do you have any plans for future research that builds on this study, or did it raise any research questions you'd like to see investigated? So that's a good question. Um, of course, the most important takeaway from the study is that we can improve the efficiency of the care that we deliver by hardwiring the criteria for appropriate test ordering and, and diagnostic stewardship into the EHR, and that, is, that it's relatively easy to do that. But some of the things that we didn't focus on that if we could have done it again, would have been helpful, um, would have been collecting information on length of stay um, or antibiotic use for diarrheal illness. There are some other studies that um, had looked at uh, inappropriate antibiotic use and whether or not different types of um, diagnostic stewardship for uh, diarrheal illness could affect inappropriate antibiotic use. So if we, had, if we had measured some of that information, we would have been able to evaluate the potential relationship of those outcome metrics with the heart stop. And you know, that would not only further support our assertion that the heart stop wouldn't compromise quality of care, but if we could demonstrate that a heart stop for diarrheal illness um, for the gastrointestinal panel would demonstrate a shorter length of stay or fewer unnecessary antibiotic prescriptions with that indication, then we could go even further to say that this intervention not only doesn't compromise quality of care, but it further enhances the quality of care. Another area of interest would be to apply this concept to other rapid diagnostic testing. So currently, there's other available multiplex tests like um, the GI pathogen panel. For example, the meningitis panel, upper respiratory, and now a newer lower respiratory panel testing. And so if we can figure out how to use those tests responsibly and not abuse them and, and order them inappropriately, then we could even further improve high value, high efficiency, and cost-conscious care. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Marcellin, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure.
Our next guest is Dan Karoff. Hi, Dr. Karoff. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Karoff, you are the first author of the article, Oral Vancomycin Prophylaxis During Systemic Antibiotic Exposure to Prevent Clostridioides Difficile Infection Relapses. What is your background and how did you get involved in this research? Well, um, I'm an infectious disease doctor um, and uh, currently I work at uh, Beth Israel Leahy Health in Massachusetts. Um, and I also uh, do research at the Department of Population Medicine um, at Harvard Med School and the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute. So my background is mainly in um, clinical ID, epidemiology uh, research. And I got involved uh, in this study because I have, a, I have a clinical interest and a research interest in C-difficile infection. And uh, a few colleagues of mine, you know, had been um, talking about this, this trend that we had been seeing clinically of people using oral vancomycin in a prophylactic way to try to prevent uh, C. difficile relapses in patients who were getting antibiotics for other reasons, whether it was pneumonia or urinary tract infection or whatever, uh, with a history of C. difficile in the past. We, found, we thought it was interesting that you know, there was some data to support this practice, but not much. And so we set out to try to do a more comprehensive study, see what we could find. So tell our listeners exactly what you did and what you found. So um, we did a retrospective study of adults with a history of C. difficile infection who were admitted to um, either of the major hospitals in the partner system, specifically um, Brigham and Women's or Mass General Hospital here in Boston. And uh, we, we specifically looked for people who uh, were admitted to the hospital and received any systemic antibiotic as part of their hospitalization. We separated the patients who uh, were also given oral vancomycin, presumably in a prophylactic way, to try to prevent a relapse of C. difficile. And separately, you know, we looked at control patients who did not receive oral vancomycin. And, you know, you can read in the paper, we, you know, we, we did some things to try to, you know, differentiate um, people who had acute infection with C. difficile and excluded those people. And then we followed these patients retrospectively, of course, for 90 days and, and actually out to 180 days. Um, and, and we looked at a couple different outcomes, uh, C. difficile relapse, uh, diagnosed a few different ways by different testing methods. And uh, we did a couple sub-analyses of patients um, that had uh, only one prior episode of C. difficile infection in the past 12 months versus more than one. Um, and we also uh, looked at a subset of patients who uh, received oral vancomycin on um, all systemic antibiotic days. And we also looked at uh, patients who had C. difficile relapse diagnosed by uh, toxin immunoassay as opposed to uh, NAAT or nucleic acid amplification testing. And what were your findings? Um, basically, what we found is that um, the overall effect of oral vancomycin was, it was, it was basically that there was no benefit in the, in the whole population uh, overall. People who took oral vancomycin along with their systemic antibiotic did not have fewer relapses than the people who didn't get any oral vancomycin prophylactically. The only exception to that were, was in uh, patients who... Um, had uh, only one prior positive C. difficile test in the past 12 months. So those patients, per, per our analysis, did get a benefit uh, with an odds ratio of 0.42 and significant confidence intervals. 
but the interesting thing about that that um the, the most recent study on the topic before us a study by Carrigan and colleagues actually found the exact opposite that it was the people who had more than one positive C. difficile a test or, or I should say relapse or, uh, in the past 12 months that got the benefit and people who only had one didn't get it. So it was, it was interesting to us that we basically found the opposite thing. And so in your opinion, how is this study particularly relevant to itchy readers? Well, as, as you listeners know, C. difficile infection is, is a huge problem. It's a growing problem and relapses of C. difficile are common and um, they can be difficult to prevent, especially in people who need antibiotics for other reasons, other infections. So, you know, what this study does is that it raises some questions about whether this practice, which, you know, has become pretty common, has really any benefit for the patient. And I think for infection control purposes, being able to prevent relapses of C. difficile is incredibly relevant. Um, because these patients are, you know, been in the hospital for other reasons, and they develop a relapse, you know, uh, well into their hospital stay, and that can spread to other patients, et cetera. So, you know, any strategy that we have to reduce C. difficile infection, whether it's primary infection or relapse, is important. So, you know, the use of something like oral vancomycin, which is a very well-tolerated medicine, it's used very commonly, I mean, that, you know, has the potential to an important tool for, you know, not just clinical care, but for infection control and in that you may reduce the number of relapses. But the fact that we didn't find any benefit uh, does, you know, raise some questions about, you know, whether it, it is a tool. So I think the, the, the major conclusion is that, you know, all the studies on this topic to date have been retrospective. Um, I'm not aware of any studies that are looking at this issue prospectively, but I think that's what we need. You know, I have some hope that there could still be a benefit because, it, you know, again, it would be an, uh, a useful tool. Um, but I think, I think that, you know, the, the jury is going to be out until uh, a prospective study can be done and we can kind of get a more you know, convincing answer as to whether or not oral vancomycin has a benefit when given prophylactically for reducing C. difficile relapses. So do you have any plans for furthering this research or any uh, research ideas you'd like to see investigated? Yeah, I think um, another important question about the use of oral vancomycin is whether it um, increases the risk of uh, VRE or vancomycin-resistant enterococcus infection in patients who use it. And I don't, I don't think that question has been fully answered, so I would love to see um, research or sub-analyses you know, looking at this risk and uh, kind of addressing the, the safety aspect of using oral vancomycin that way. Well, thanks, Dr. Karoff, for joining me today and sharing your research with our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joining me now are Dr. Elise Fortin and Dr. Charles Burnett, two of the authors of the article, Changes in Vascular Accesses and in Incidence Rates of Dialysis-Related Bloodstream Infections in Quebec, Canada, between 2011 and 2017. Welcome to the podcast. Can you start by introducing yourselves to our listeners? Yes, uh, my name is Elise Fortin. I'm an epidemiologist at the Quebec National Institute of Public Health, where I've been working on surveillance of healthcare-associated infections for the last 15 years. And I'm Dr. Charles Frenette. I'm the Medical Director for Infection Control at McGill University Health Center. 
And I am the chair uh, for uh, surveillance program in hemodialysis in Quebec. Great. Well, welcome. Um, to start, can you share with our listeners a little bit of the background for your study and maybe talk about what exactly you uh, investigated and what you found? Sure. Um, the context of the study goes back to 2002, when a study on the frequency of healthcare-associated bloodstream infections had shown that dialysis was the most frequent source of bloodstream infections in ambulatory care in the province. Uh, we also knew, thanks to the DOPS studies, that the use of fistulas for dialysis was quite low in Canada. And so since the risk of uh, dialysis-related bloodstream infection, or DRBSI, is lower with fistulas compared to catheters, there seemed to be potential for improvement. So uh, a provincial surveillance of DRBSI was implemented in 2007, and it became mandatory in 2011. And as our surveillance results were suggesting unexpected trends, we decided to describe more thoroughly the epidemiology of DRBSIs in Quebec during the first years of mandatory surveillance. So more specifically, we wanted to describe time trends for two main surveillance indicators, which are the proportion of patients dialyzed using a fistula and also incidence rates of DRBSIs. And we wanted to measure the association between the two indicators. And we were expecting facilities with higher proportions of fistulas to have lower rates of DRBSIs. So we built a cohort that included all 36 adult uh, facilities that were followed from April 2011 to March 2017. We uh, computed the proportion of patient months using a either a natural fistula or a graft. We computed this proportion per facility and per year. It was analyzed with binomial regression using generalized estimating equations to describe evolution in time. We also computed incidence rates of DRBSIs per 100 patient months per facility and per year once again, but this time we used Poisson regression to model time trends and we also accounted in different ways for vascular access. Then in a final model, uh, facilities were divided into quartiles according to their proportion of fistula, and we checked whether these quartiles were associated with incidence rates. And in the end, we found that the proportion of patient months using a fistula was low, and that it had decreased going from 46% to 39%, but surprisingly, we also found that rates of DRBSI had decreased starting at 0.38 DRBSI per 100 patient months and reaching a low of 0.23 uh, in the last year of the study. And the decrease was observed for both fistulas and catheters. Finally, as expected, at the individual level, the, the highest rates of DRBSI were observed with non-tunneled catheters, followed by tunneled catheters, then grafts, and the lowest rates were observed with natural fistulas. However, at the ecologic level, when looking at our population level indicators, there was no association between facilities proportion of fistula and their rates of DRBSI. So are there any, or what would you say are the key takeaways that you feel are especially relevant to the itchy readers? Well, I, I think the first thing is if we look at the overall results over all the years, 
is that, you know, overall we've had a very significant decrease in the events of uh, bloodstream uh, infections associated with, with vascular access in dialysis. And, and, and that by itself is a, a nice result to have. Uh, the surprising part is right off from the first year when we looked at patients and, you know, the rate of infection, of bloodstream infections in patients with fistula was much, much lower than the rates of infections of, of patients dialyzed with, with catheters. And, and so one of her first prevention recommendations was to, to increase the proportion of patients dialyzed with fistula. And despite our recommendations, as we can see in the paper, unfortunately, the proportion of patients uh, dialyzed with fistula is, is decreasing over time. And that's likely because we, we have an aging population, uh, we have increasingly complicated uh, patients being dialyzed with poor vascular access. And so we were quite deceived to see that proportion uh, go down. Uh, but however, uh, over those years, independent of the type of access, in each of type of access, we saw a decrease in the rates of uh, bloodstream-associated, uh, bloodstream infection associated with vascular access. And so we, we can postulate many reasons, but um, certainly the, the presence of this uh, surveillance program uh, certainly has helped all hemodialysis units benchmark across, uh, across each other and, and improve their rates. The second message uh, that we can we we can take from from this publications is that there's a, there's a paradox that despite the rate being higher uh, with, fish, with with catheters, the dialysis units with the highest proportion of catheters did not necessarily have the highest rates of of a bloodstream infection. So that there are some other variables that must explain uh, the rates of, uh, of infection. The third message I would take from, from this publication is if you look at and compare our rate compared to national data, either in the States or in France, our rates are, are very, very low, have decreased, and are really uh, amongst the best published uh, in the world. Uh, and this, despite the fact that we have one of the lowest proportion of fistula uh, from a national point of view. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, my last question is, did your findings or the limitations of your study raise any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated or that you plan to investigate? Yeah, so I think there's two avenues that we, we are exploring, actually. Uh, the first one is to try and find out why are patients not getting a fistula, because I still think it's an avenue to prevent bloodstream infections. Uh, and we've actually currently included in our surveillance program uh, an investigation of why patients with uh, bloodstream infections have not had fistula. Uh, was it because of a failure, because of poor vascular access, uh, because of, uh, of uh, distance or access to 
surgery. And so uh, hopefully in a year or two, we'll have more data on why patients are preferably dialyzed by catheter instead of fistula. And the second um, avenue is relating to that issue I was telling you that there are other factors that explain why patients may get bloodstream infections. And this probably has to do with the underlying medical condition, age, and individual patient level risk factors, which may vary from unit to unit depending on the patient population that is served, uh, whether it's a referral center for complicated patients or a peripheral community center that may deal with um, a younger population and uh, less complicated uh, patients from a medical point of view. And to really answer that question, we would need to collect uh, data not only on the patients that uh, develop infections, but on all the populations dialyzed in the province uh, so that we could really uh, study in more detail uh, patient risk factors associated with uh, dialysis-associated bloodstream infection. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Fortin and Dr. Fournette, for joining me today. And uh, listeners can go to the June issue to read the full article, Changes in Vascular Accesses and in Incidence Rates of Dialysis-Related Bloodstream Infections in Quebec, Canada, 2011 through 2017. My next guest is Dr. Zachary Yetmar, first author of the article, Pulmonary Artery Catheter Epidemiology of Risk in Pre-Heart Transplant Recipients. Hi, Dr. Yetmar. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So uh, my name is Zachary Yetmar. Uh, I'm a second year internal medicine resident at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, planning to go into a career in infectious disease. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. To start, will you give us a little bit of background to your study? Yeah. So uh, my study was, it was basically inspired by some of our uh, internal infection control data. Uh, it showed that in our hospital, um, the uh, central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs uh, were about 10% of them were in patients that were waiting for heart transplants. Um, and those people only constituted about like less than 1% of the people that were actually at risk for these infections. So it was a little bit of a discordant numbers there. And so that made us want to look a little bit more into what is the actual risk in these patients because this population of patients will not uncommon for them to be sitting in the hospital for weeks to months with a, a pulmonary artery catheter in place, simply waiting for uh, an organ to become available for them. And so they have a long, uh, long time in the hospital with a large amount of risk for central line associated bloodstream infection. And so that inspired us to uh, look at these patients, and um, we looked at the, a few-year history from 2013 to 2016, uh, looking at patients in our ICUs who had one of these catheters in place and were waiting for heart transplant. Overall, we basically found that these people were, like we suspected, at a very high risk for infection. They had a rate of about five per 1,000 line days, where in the same time period, our own patients had 
overall with central lines in place had a rate of about one per thousand line days. And so just a bit of a discordant number there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly you did in this study and what you found? Sure. So what we did is we looked back uh, at all of our patients that were at that time status 1A. It has since been reclassified as status 1 to 3 on the heart transplant waiting list from January 2013 to December 2016 and collecting their data on how, how many lines they had in place over how many days these lines were in place. Um, demographic data, and then if they had an infection and sort of data about that, if they, if this impacted their listing on the heart transplant list, if this led to what their time to transplant was, what uh, their mortality rate was, um, and if these collapses had any effect on that, whether someone had an infection or not. Basically, overall, to get more specific, they these people had their infection rate overall was 5.46 per 1,000 line days. Most commonly, they had coagulase negative staphylococcus as their infecting organism when they had a collapse, about 79% of the time. And then in an unadjusted analysis, they did have a shorter time to transplant, but when we counted for the number of line days this, uh, that they had, uh, that became a non-significant association. So really just how long these people had the lines in place was driving their overall risk for these collapses, um, which is really concordant with a lot of other studies looking at many other types of central lines showing that the longer these are in place, the higher the risk is for having a collapse overall, um, which is really pertinent to this population that they will have these in place for weeks to months, just a lot of times waiting for a heart transplant once they get to some of that stable state in the hospital with their inotropes running. Um, And so it really gives them a large opportunity to have some decline, which can be catastrophic for a certain number of patients. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are the main takeaways relevant to itchy readers in particular? So I think some of the main takeaways are that these people are at a much higher risk for infection compared to other uh, central line populations. And something to one be cognizant of about, but also, you know, down the line as more research comes out, I think certain populations could be looked at as if they really need these in place. Right now they do for the heart transplant listing, and that's, uh, and a lot of them have great reason to have them in place, but there are some patients that maybe some less invasive uh, uses, less invasive methods for determining their hemodynamics could be appropriate to try and mitigate this risk. Did the limitations of your study uh, or some of the findings of your study raise any future research questions that either you plan to investigate or that you'd like to see investigated? Yeah, so one thing that our institution is doing that will be interesting to look at is we're starting to um, introduce tunneled pulmonary artery catheters, something that's done in a lot of other lines, such as PICC lines, for example. Uh, and that's been associated in those populations as having a lower rate of infection. And it'll be interesting to see if that has an impact on the infection rate in this population. And, you know, other things that could be looked at down the line are also not only those difference between tunneled and non-tunneled lines, but what impact these collapses have um, on the population. Because our number overall, just with the rate of transplantation and just being a single center 
it was a little bit tough to draw some of those conclusions uh, that would probably need a larger sample size. If we were able to get either one institution that had a more, more patients like this or a multi-center study looking at this, what impact this has, I think that could be a little more powerful as well. Well, thank you, Dr. Yetmar, for speaking with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for talking. This concludes episode five of the Itchy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening.